Welcome to Oncology Nursing Update, Multiple Myeloma Edition. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Joseph McHale, and to begin, he presented a patient from his practice. This gentleman is a fascinating individual. He is a 63-year-old male architect who is very committed to his job, enjoys his work, actually involves a fair amount of travel for him as well. He was initially diagnosed with his good medical follow-up, but it was noted that he was having a little bit of anemia, and at the same time he was experiencing some back pain. It was limiting him a little bit. He found it a little bit challenging, in particular when he was trying to fly and travel, that it was hurting him more. Underwent very good investigation from an internist who discovered that he had an elevated protein. Underwent more testing by an oncologist to determine that he did indeed have IgG kappa multiple myeloma. Now, this man is 63 years old. What's the typical age, the median age of myeloma? And how does the treatment approach for a 63-year-old differ than, for example, 75 or 80-year-old? So he's pretty close to the middle or the median or average age of patients with myeloma. That's somewhere around 65, depending on how we look at the numbers in different countries. It's pretty well landed between 65 and 66 would be the average age. It is a disease that, as we get older, is clearly more common. It's very rare in the patients under the age of 40. Only about 2% of myeloma patients land under the age of 40, although sadly it still happens in that context and sometimes we have to approach those patients differently. But the main division of patients in myeloma is still around the notion of whether or not they are eligible for an autologous stem cell transplant or sometimes referred to as bone marrow transplant where we intend to give them a very high dose of chemotherapy and use their own stem cells to regrow a new bone marrow after the chemotherapy has sought to destroy most of the myeloma and in doing so sometimes a good part of their own bone marrow. And that kind of intense therapy is harsh on patients. And so although we're never ageist, we know as we get older, it's harder to accept that. So most places will cut off somewhere between 65 and 70. The average is roughly about 70, where if a patient is below the age of 70 with pretty good performance status without significant comorbidities that very much limit their life, then they would be eligible for a transplant. For those who are 70 and over, although there are some exceptions for patients who are very healthy in their early 70s, most of those patients won't be getting an autologous stem cell transplant. Thankfully now, whichever group a patient lands in, we have many options for them and better drugs than we ever used to have so we're not always exclusively dependent on transplants. Can you talk a little bit about this strategy in a younger patient? You mentioned transplant. How does that factor in in terms of timing? And how did you explain to this man sort of what you were thinking in terms of the treatment plan? Sure. So, you know, I explained to him that, you know, in general, the disease in its earlier phases, it's more susceptible to treatment that unfortunately with time, the disease may become very resistant. But we do have a good opportunity early on to get good control of the disease. And as I often mention, I talk about the two Ds of response, the depth of one's response and the duration of one's response. So depth would mean getting that bad protein all the way down, eliminating almost all of those plasma cells that are abnormal if possible. And then duration is to make sure it stays there. It's one thing to get someone into remission, but it's one thing to keep them in remission. And what we've learned over time is that with a lot of these newer agents that we have to use, we can be quite effective at that first step of getting them a good depth of response. 
We've also learned over the years that stem cell transplant can help contribute to the depth, but also contribute to the duration of that response, where if we really reduce the burden of disease to very small, even if we don't entirely eliminate it, it'll take a long time for it to grow again. So I explained that autologous stem cell transplant is not curative per se. It doesn't forever get rid of the disease, but it does put it into remission for longer. And so our usual strategy is to give some form of combination of drugs to bring the disease down, to then collect one's stem cells when there's enough good marrow to collect good stem cells from to grow a new bone marrow, give them the high dose of chemotherapy, and then their stem cells back to fill in that marrow, and then see where we are after that and decide how much more therapy they may or may not need for the durability of their remission to keep them there for longer. I explained that in over 90% of patients, when we take this kind of strategy, we can get them into a very deep response and often very durable, but that sadly, inevitably, the disease will come back at some point. And so we want to choose our therapies appropriately so that we have options for them ongoing. And I think it's important that you pointed out that what's really therapeutic against the tumor is the high-dose chemotherapy. The transplant is really just to sort of salvage the patient. What do you explain? I don't know if you even get into this in terms of the controversy about transplant. There are people who've said, well, things are different than they used to be. When we did studies that showed transplant work, we have new drugs. It's not so clear whether they really need a transplant as a part of this initial therapy. And if they do agree to go to a transplant, what do you tell them to expect in terms of side effects and toxicity? Yeah, you made an excellent point, Neil. You know, sometimes we use the word stem cell rescue instead of transplant because, you know, people hear transplant, they think they're getting a different organ or something's being replaced. And really, the analogy I give to patients, actually, frankly, is that here's your lawn and it's filled with weeds and we're giving you weed killer, as it were, to get rid of the weeds. And we've been doing so with regular drugs, but... To really get rid of the weeds, we want to light a match and burn the lawn because we know that's absolutely going to get rid of them. The problem is you've got a burnt lawn. (laughs) So before you would burn the lawn, you'd make sure that the garage has some seeds for you to grow a new one. So in this situation, we collect seeds, if you will, from the patient, their stem cells. We put them in the freezer. We burn their lawn. Then we put their seeds back onto the ground and hope that grass is going to grow back, which it inevitably does. Because these seeds are collected from that same patient, we know that they're always going to grow the grass back. So I explained the process as being fairly intense in the sense that most of our patients need to take about three months off of work if they're going to go through this process. The different institutions do it differently, but we do have an outpatient program or an inpatient program when they're being treated as an inpatient. They're in hospital for about two and a half weeks. They are going to have a weakened immune system for a period of that time, although I reassure them that they're not quite, you know, the bubble boy as one would think, and that we have good care of them and we have good antibiotics. And that the risk of actually dying through the transplant process now is extremely low, well below half of 1%. And that they are going to take time to recoup thereafter, that they sadly do lose their hair, that they will be quite weakened thereafter, but that most people within, as I say, two to three months have regained their strength. And the controversies you've mentioned is there. Oh, by the way, I do also mention during the transplant process, depending how much detail we can get into today, I clearly discuss this with them when they're about to go through transplant, that the four most common side effects that they experience during the transplant are going to be nausea, mouth sores, fever, and diarrhea. And I know that doesn't sound like a great menu, but those are things that generally speaking to some degree happen to most people, but thankfully we can control it quite well and help them through that process. 
What do you tell them if they ask the chance of dying as a result of the transplant? Well, I mean, I explain at least in our institution where we do over 200 of them per year, we've had one death in the last seven years, and it was someone who was quite ill to begin with. So, you know, you never want to say zero, but everything in life is risk. I think sometimes driving down the highways is more risky than a transplant. But now with better supportive care, with careful selection of patients, it's thankfully a consideration that is extremely low, less than, as they say, half of 1%, if even not lower than that. You know, and then as for the controversy, it is a controversy, and that's why we discuss it. You know, people make a very valid point that we have newer drugs. Maybe we don't need to give people these high doses of chemotherapy. However, for a number of reasons, at least at present, until we have very strong evidence to change that, I argue for transplant for several reasons. One, in a disease where we're still not thus far curing patients, or at least the overwhelming majority of them, the last thing I want to do is take something off the table. I don't want to limit my options. Number two, you're the champ until someone knocks you out, as it were. So transplant has been the champ, as it were, for a long time. We know that for many patients, it can really help with both the depth and the duration of their response and give them long periods of time, either off therapy or at least in remission. And thirdly, that with the improvements now in supportive care in the way we deliver the drugs, people very often can have outpatient transplants where it's much less intense than it used to be. I guess the last comment I'd make, Neil, about this is that there is a little bit of an in-between. We've had some patients now who say, look, doc, I'm happy to go for a transplant. And I had this discussion with this same patient that we're referring to who will say, is there any way we can just collect my stem cells but keep them in the bank for a while and delay my transplant because this is a really productive time of my life. I'm getting a lot of work done. And we now have stronger evidence that this is a reasonable approach where although the benefit of transplant seems to be earlier on in the disease course, that doesn't necessarily have to be part of first-line therapy. So I have a number of patients like this patient, although he opted to go to transplant right away, who would say, look, if we can get me into a nice good response and collect my stem cells, we can use stem cells, by the way, for many, many years after they've been collected. Can't I just stay on these drugs that have been working so well? And maybe after I retire or when work is not so busy or when it's more convenient for me, can we pursue a transplant? And that's an option that many of us are exercising for our patients now. Now, What about before and after the transplant in terms of the type of therapy? You mentioned that the transplanters like to see the tumor driven down before they send the patient to transplant. What are some of the approaches that are used and what happened with this man? So... Right now, thankfully, we have many drugs available in myeloma. Sometimes I talk about the so-called big five, you know, thalidomide, bortezomib, lenalidomide, carfilzomib, and pomalidomide. Those final two are still, generally speaking, used later in the disease course, although some people are using carfilzomib up front. So we tend to be looking at those first three, thalidomide, lenalidomide, and bortezomib. In the United States, in particular, we're tending to be using less thalidomide up front because it can carry certain toxicities, and the other drug from that class, lenalidomide, is probably a bit more effective than it. So it leaves us with those two major agents, lenalidomide and bortezomib, and I would say that for most patients, they're either treated with one of those two, if not both together. I discussed this at length with my patient here that being a standard risk patient, I think there are perhaps even more options. I think most of us would agree that in high-risk patients, they should at least receive bortezomib plus or minus lenalidomide. We often use a combination that 
he ultimately selected, which is called Cybor-D, which is bortezomib, but using oral weekly cyclophosphamide instead of lenalidomide, the rationale being that we can so-called save the lenalidomide for later and that this combination on its own is still quite effective, if not as equally effective as lenalidomide bortezomib dex. And the way I explain it to patients is we want to see the disease come down. I said different transplanters, and I work as a transplanter also, will have different cutoffs, but that in general, we want to see the disease go down by at least 50%. In an ideal situation, maybe 90%. But if it's going down in that realm, we generally plan for about four cycles of therapy. And if their disease is responding, we'll then collect their stem cells and take them to transplant. Some of the nice things about this combination is that if we wanted to go to five or six cycles, we could. Or we could do four cycles of transplant. And if there's still some disease left over, we could give more of the same or switch to something else. We really try and tailor it to each individual, any side effects they experience, how they feel about getting their therapy, and of course what the numbers are. But I would say nationwide, the most common frontline regimens would either be what's often called a VRD or bortezomib, lenalidomide, dexamethasone used by their trade names, or Cybor-D, or sometimes even just bortezomib index or lenalidomide index alone without an extra partner that if we can use those agents to get a good deep response in a transplant, then we discuss after transplant if they need more therapy like maintenance. What do you explain to patients in terms of how these drugs work? You have the so-called IMIDs, immune modulatory drugs like lenalidomide and thalidomide and pomalidomide, and then the proteasome inhibitors that you mentioned, bortezomib and carfilzomib. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I sort of get a sense of how much detail the patient wants to know because very few of them want to know the exact basic science mechanisms, although frankly, we don't fully understand it. But the way I explain these two classes of drugs, first of all, as I say, you know, this is kind of new style chemotherapy. You know, in the old days, no disrespect to old style chemotherapy, which we still use, of course, in transplant, it was kind of less focused therapy. It was saying, you know, if there's the enemy in the building across the street, one way to take down the enemy is just to blow up the whole building. And old school chemotherapy sometimes is like, you know, just going in there and kind of wholesale destroying the building. But a lot of these drugs now, their mechanisms are a little bit more targeted. So why destroy all of the infrastructure of the building? Because it's not all part of the enemy, as it were. And maybe if we know the enemy is just on the third floor, maybe we can cut off the power to the third floor, cut off the water to the third floor, or somehow make their environment right there uncomfortable for them to grow. And the imids, as you call them, or immune modulatory drugs, we know influence the surroundings. Sometimes they don't go in there and destroy the enemy, but if you cut off all of the enemy's supply, they're not going to function particularly well. Similarly, the proteasome inhibitors, they work by a mechanism where we know certain pathways of growth in a cancer cell, which leads it to be immortal, because that's really what cancer is. Cancer is just uncontrolled growth. Sometimes I just say it's identical uncontrolled growth, those three phenomenon, that the proteasome inhibitors can interfere with some of those pathways so that those cells don't have that same opportunity to sort of live indefinitely. You know, with newer and newer drugs coming, we even have other mechanisms that we describe to patients where maybe instead of just cutting off the supply to that third floor enemy, I can actually send a smart bomb or smart bullet that goes and only hits that one area. And those are things that we think will come in the future, like monoclonal antibodies that are very specific to what's in the tumor and still spare the good cells around them. 
So I share with patients, you know, people hear the word chemotherapy, Neil, the first thing they think of is bald and barf, right? And thankfully, with most of these agents, maybe with the exception of transplant, we can approach them with agents and drugs that will still allow them to work, to have their quality of life, where most of the side effects, although of course very important, are usually controllable and in the long term sustainable. What are some of the specific side effects that you talk to patients about in terms of these various drugs and regimens, and how is the method of administration and sort of scheduling different? So if we start with the one that this gentleman underwent, the Cybor-D, as we called it, so I explained to them that this is a combination of three drugs, Cybor and D. So cyclophosphamide, which is a pill that they take once a week, Bortezomib is the key agent, the proteasome inhibitors we've said, which is also given once weekly, and we have two choices. We can either give it in the IV or in the skin, what we call subcutaneous. And we've found, for many reasons I'll explain in a moment, that we prefer subcutaneous. And then dexamethasone, which is a steroid, which kind of boosts the effect of those two drugs together, which is also a pill given weekly. So I explained to them that they're going to have to take a fair amount of pills once a week and come in once a week for the subcutaneous injection. For the cyclophosphamide, I explained that at this dose and the way we give it, thankfully most patients don't experience any side effects, but about one in five, one in six will have some nausea, and we do have to watch their blood counts if they have low blood counts to begin with, in particular their white cells, that they can drop down and that puts them at slight risk of infection, so we have to watch that. For the bortezomib, I explained that with the weekly subcutaneous injection, they can get a little irritation in the skin, and we're going to watch for that because there's a small subset of people, about 5%, who the reaction is so strong that they end up having to switch to IV, but that most people much prefer a subcutaneous shot than an intravenous one. That for the 24 to 48 hours after the injection, they can have some stomach upset and even some diarrhea, and we'll be watching for that. That usually does improve with time. And then the one side effect that we're all very sensitive to is we sometimes call neuropathy or where they have nerve damage. And this is where they get numbness and tingling. It almost always starts in the tips of the fingers or the tips of the toes. And if left unwatched, ascends up into the hands or into the feet. So I'm very careful to explain with patients that now that we give the drug once a week, now that we give the drug subcutaneously, we've dramatically dropped the rates of serious neuropathy from the high teens now to maybe below 7 if not 5%, but that they need to watch for that, that if they feel any numbness and tingling in their hands or their feet, we want to know that because that will influence our treatments. And then the dexamethasone being a pill, it is kind of the drug we love and hate. <laughs> we love it because the most common side effect is people have more energy, and usually by the time they're starting their treatment, they're pretty tired and worn out from their disease, so that can be a good thing. But sometimes it can be too much so that the next day they feel really weak and tired. And so we talk to them a little bit about the wiredness that they might feel on it and how we can adjust the dose with time. And that although we found that about two-thirds of patients benefit from taking the drug in the morning because they get pretty soon after taking it, they get that excited, wired feeling. But that we actually have a third of patients who we found benefit taking it at night. Historically, this drug is always given in the morning, but... I ask patients, when does the jitteriness kick in? For a lot of people, they say, you know, it's about seven or eight hours after I take the pill, doc. And if so, I instruct them to take it at night so that maybe they can get that first good night's sleep and then feel it the next day. The other thing to watch with dexamethasone is it can push up blood pressure and blood sugar. Over long periods of time, it can affect bones and cataracts, but usually in the scheme that we're giving it before transplant, that's not an issue. 
And the last point I'll make, Neil, is that we always recommend that all patients on bortezomib should get prophylaxis or prevention of getting shingles in the form of acyclovir, because we know that without that, somewhere around 12 to 15% of them can get shingles. I mean, that's a risk from the disease itself, but bortezomib seems to enhance it. But when they're on prevention, that risk is down to about 2 to 3%. What about the zoster vaccination? Presently, we do not recommend the zoster vaccination because it is a live vaccine. And theoretically, we do not recommend any live vaccines to our myeloma patients, generally so to cancer patients, but in particular myeloma patients because their cancer of the plasma cells, of course, inhibits their production of good immunoglobulin. And there is a chance that, albeit small, that that can actually induce the actual infection. So presently, we're not recommending it. I mean, if someone has had it before, obviously there's no way to reverse it, but we are sensitive to zoster because it can be so uncomfortable for our patients. And we'll talk in a second about the imids and side effects and lenalidomide, but first, can you talk about how he did with the Cyborg D, both in terms of side effects and benefit, and how he did with the transplant? So he did quite well, actually. Thankfully, he had fewer side effects, but he did have some challenges with that dexamethasone. I mean, he was a pretty energetic person to begin with. And I remember hearing it from his wife, which is often the case. In fact, when you're assessing dexamethasone toxicity, I think it's mandatory to speak to the patient's partner or spouse because he said, oh, I get a little bit, you know, wired on the day I get it. And then his wife looks at me and says, are you kidding me? He's insufferable (laughs) for those first 24 hours. So We did, after the first two months of therapy, cut his dexamethasone in half from 40 milligrams to 20 milligrams. And he was one of the individuals, actually, that we ended up moving it to the nighttime. And that significantly reduced the challenges he had with dex. And he had a really nice, consistent, every month drop in his monoclonal protein. He was down to about 75% of where he was at the start after four cycles. We were happy with that. So he went on to have his transplant. He was one of our sort of poster boy patients kind of cruised through the transplant. He did develop a fever as almost all of our patients do and needed antibiotics, but he did well with it. He had some diarrhea towards the end and was pretty exhausted at the end of it. But about two months after the transplant, he was starting definitely to feel like himself again, gaining some strength. And then we had a conversation at 100 days after transplant when he was about 95% down from where he had started in his disease, but there was still a little bit left. And we opted at that point to commence him on maintenance therapy. So before you get into what maintenance is, just to backtrack a little bit, how did he do on the bortezomib? Any neuropathy? So thankfully, he really experienced no neuropathy. Um, We were very sensitive to that. I mean, every patient, obviously, we need to be sensitive to. But as an architect, you know, the use of his fingers was particularly important. He did still a lot of drawing, although a lot of it now is electronically, as he described to me. But his dexterity is fundamental to his life. He did have a little bit of shakiness with the dex, although when we dosed, reduced the dexamethasone, that improved. But thankfully, he didn't really experience any GI toxicities. He had no neuropathy and did very well on bortezomib. And you mentioned that he then went on to so-called lenalidomide maintenance. What is that concept? So the concept that I outlined from the start, that you know, there are two big features to someone's response to almost any therapy is depth and duration. And so what we call induction therapy or initial therapy and even consolidation, which is usually the form of a transplant, that's really all directed towards depth. So they tend to be more intense, more aggressive therapies, combinations of drugs. 
Maintenance therapy as a principle is the concept of maintaining the response that has been achieved, maybe deepening it a little bit more, but it's focused more on durability. So it's more of a time phenomenon. So it tends to be a little less aggressive, tends to be longer term, where we hope that the side effects are fewer so that patients can sustain their response for a long time. He still, as you may remember, had about 5% of his disease left. And although that's a small amount, we discussed the fact that we could leave it and wait and watch. I think there are some patients in whom that is very appropriate, even with 5% left and standard risk patients. But he was not interested in seeing anything but his numbers go down to zero, which is understandable. And although he did very well with the bortezomib, with his travel and his work, he preferred to be on a regimen that was just a pill. And I think the evidence is strong that maintenance lenalidomide can be of great benefit to patients like this and prolong the time that they're in remission. So we started him on lower dose, if you will, maintenance therapy, where he started at 10 milligrams a day, three weeks out of four. And thankfully, he's done very well with it. And his response has deepened further, where there's really just a barely hint of any disease left now. I think he's about four to five months into his maintenance therapy, tolerating it well, back to his travels and work. And thankfully, at this point, is doing very well. What are some of the side effect issues with the IMIDs and specifically lenalidomide? And what about clots? So when I talk to patients about lenalidomide, I do mention that there are a lot of potential side effects. Thankfully, in careful hands, they can be minimized. But the first one I talk to them about is fatigue. Thankfully, this is not that prominent, but with still about one in five patients, Neil, experience a fatigue with this drug that is really hard to put a handle on. It's not necessarily reflected, for example, in their hemoglobin. They just feel tired. And with the regimen we use with three weeks on and one week off, I'm very careful in my history taking to see how did you feel in that week off? And if they say to me, you know, I really felt a lot better, I didn't have that same dragging of my feet, then that's a sign to me that that's an issue. And very often, even with just one level of dose reduction, that can get considerably better. And as I said, that happens about one in five. The second side effect I talk to patients about is it can drop their blood counts. Now, usually by the time if we're using it for maintenance therapy, usually their blood counts have recovered quite nicely after transplant. But whenever we use lenalidomide, we can always see the white blood cells in particular drop. There can be a drop in the hemoglobin. There can be a drop in the platelet count, usually not to a level that we have to intervene but if they get a drop in their white count, I tell them, of course, they're a little bit more at risk of infection. So we have to watch for that. And again, thankfully, if we dose reduce, that tends to take care of that problem. The third side effect I mentioned to them is blood clotting. Although we don't fully understand all of the mechanisms, we know that any of the three drugs in this class, thalidomide, lenalidomide, or pomalidomide, they can be at risk of developing clots. Somewhere between 80 to 90% of patients will benefit from just low-dose aspirin. So I tell them they can go to Costco and buy the cheapest 81 milligrams of aspirin and take that, and that suffices. If, however, they themselves have had a blood clot before or there are other risk factors that make us concerned that their risks are higher, then we have to up the ante a little bit and consider either low molecular weight heparin, Coumadin, and although it's still early, some of the newer anticoagulants can be considered. The last Side effect I discuss with lenalidomide is thankfully not one that's very common and also one that's usually quite overcomable is that people can get a rash. People are familiar with that because most drugs can give you a rash. I do try to explain to people that even if they get the rash, and it can be pretty uncomfortable and cover a good part of their body, that it's usually a phenomenon of the first exposure, that we can hold the drug for a while, let the rash settle, maybe give them a bit of steroids through it, 
and then reintroduce the drug. Because as I mentioned from the start, you know, we don't want to take things off the table and a rash, generally speaking, should not stop us from going back to this drug. So the other important drug that was approved not that long ago, as you mentioned, is the other proteasome inhibitor, carfilzomib. How does that differ from bortezomib? And maybe you can talk about this 58-year-old man, a ski instructor who received it. Mm-hmm. So he's another fascinating man who I've been privileged to care for. He's 58. He's a ski instructor from Colorado, so spends his winters up in the mountains. And unfortunately, he is in that one-third of patients we discussed early on who have high-risk disease. So he has the 17P deletion, or what's called the P53 deletion. And because of that risk factor, when we initially treated him, we were a little bit more aggressive, and he did receive VRD chemotherapy. So he had bortezomib and lenalidomide and dexamethasone. He had a transplant. He was put on maintenance bortezomib because we feel that in high-risk patients, that may be the best approach that we have. And despite that, unfortunately, in keeping with his high-risk disease, his disease grew back about two years after his transplant. So he was placed on pomalidomide at the time. He it was coming into the winter. He wanted to be on a drug, if possible, that was oral because he wanted to continue to ski. And he was actually feeling fairly well at the time. And so he did respond quite well to pomalidomide. But unfortunately, his disease came back only six months into pomalidomide. So his disease was, again, unfortunately, declaring itself to be higher risk. So we opted for carfilzomib. And carfilzomib, as we mentioned before, is another proteasome inhibitor in the class of bortezomib. And kind of like the image, I say it's a cousin to bortezomib, meaning it's not just bortezomib without neuropathy, as some have described it. It's actually a separate drug that is very potent, that even much like with lenalidomide and pomalidomide, even patients who are relapsing on bortezomib, we can see it very effective in at least a third of patients. So we opted to put him on it. We combined it, actually, with weekly oral cyclophosphamide because we do think that with his higher-risk status, maybe one drug on its own wouldn't be sufficient. And so we opted to add cyclophosphamide to it as well as dexamethasone. And he is starting to respond. He's responding well. But we have been talking about the fact that you know, his other responses now have been a bit short-lived, and could we consider adding more to his current therapy? And so we've considered possibly adding thalidomide to it. But he's tolerated the carfilzomib well. It's another drug that is quite well tolerated. It is a bit different in its administration. It's intravenous right now, standardly given twice a week, three weeks out of four, although there is some newer emerging data that we might be able to use it weekly, but I'm not sure that's quite ready for prime time yet. And the risk factors we talk with our patients and potential side effects is that in the very first cycle in particular, people can experience tumor lysis syndrome, which is, again, kind of a side effect we love and hate. We love it because it tells us the drug's working. We hate it because it can be tough on the kidneys. So we tend to give lower doses of the drug for the first cycle and make sure that they're hydrated quite well. In fact, our policy is that we give 250 cc's of fluid before and after every dose for the first cycle. And then for subsequent cycles, just 250 either before or after every dose based on what is preferred by the provider. And so it's important, we think, particularly in that first month, he actually did have a little bit of evidence of tumor lysis. There was a little bump in his liver enzymes, a little bump in his creatinine, but not high enough that made us nervous that we would stop or dose reduce. We continued on with his hydration and he tolerated it quite well. 
I know some have raised concerns about cardiac issues with carfilzomib, and I would say that the majority of those are fluid-related. We want to make sure that if someone, he didn't, but if someone had a history of heart failure or cardiac challenges, we might be a little bit more careful and judicious in how we're giving fluid, warning patients that they may experience some shortness of breath, and if so, it has to be watched for. Thankfully, most patients who experience shortness of breath, it just goes away spontaneously, but if there's evidence of fluid overload, they need to be treated for that. And it can, like bortezomib, drop blood counts a little bit, but his have done quite well, even with the cyclophosphamide. And as I say right now, he continues on that combination. Now, before you mentioned neuropathy as a possible problem with bortezomib, what about neuropathy with carfilzomib? Well, like with any myeloma patient, sometimes even the disease itself can cause a bit of neuropathy. But thankfully, with carfilzomib, it's extremely low in the larger trials that we did early on, there was only 1% of patients who had grade 3 neuropathy or higher. So I wouldn't say it's entirely devoid of neuropathy, but it's dramatically less than bortezomib. And I even think it's a bit less than bortezomib when bortezomib is given subcutaneously and weekly. So that's an encouraging phenomenon for us. Although, as I mentioned, it has to be given intravenously twice weekly. So you have out there these sort of next-generation agents, pomalidomide, carfilzomib, used right now, as you said, in the relapse refractory setting as with these two patients. In what situations would you give both of them together? That's a very good question, and we're evaluating that prospectively in trials. But, you know, I think we intimated a little bit with this gentleman here that when people have more aggressive disease, high-risk features, growing quickly, coming back quickly, or even have a high burden of disease with plasma cell leukemia or high LDH, extramedullary disease. And this is like a bonfire that can grow very quickly. And I think, although historically we think a little bit of so-called sequential treatment where you just kind of go from one line to another to another, knowing that you can't cure the patient, for these high-risk patients, I think it's very rational to give them carfilzomib and even pomalidomide together. I mentioned thalidomide for him only because he had progressed so quickly on pomalidomide. But had he relapsed, for example, at that two-year mark after his transplant with very aggressive disease, then it would have been very appropriate to consider not just putting him on POM at the time, but adding carfilzomib and pomalidomide together. So I wouldn't say it's absolutely always used together because, again, for some patients, we want to be able to have a longer treatment span with sequential therapy. But especially in high-risk people or high-burden disease, it's very appropriate to use them together. So the final question I want to ask you relates to sort of what's coming up next with myeloma. One thing we're hearing a lot about is the possibility of monoclonal antibodies. We see a lot of monoclonal antibodies in general in oncology, rituximab, for example, in the lymphomas. And we're starting to hear now about monoclonal antibodies with myeloma. What do we know about these and where do you think it's heading? Well, I do think these are going to be a very big part of what we do in the future. There are several of them with several targets. I would say right now, probably the ones that are the most encouraging are what are called the anti-CD38 molecule antibodies. As you mentioned, rituximab really changed the landscape of how we treat lymphoma by it being added to almost every chemotherapy regimen we had for lymphoma. We, I don't want to be too prophetic here, but we may see the same with these anti-CD38 molecules. Why? because first of all, they demonstrated very strong single agent activity, more so than some of the earlier monoclonal antibodies where very heavily pretreated patients were seeing response rates over 30%. Two, very few side effects, thankfully, from them. There's some infusional reactions that are possible, but 
the historical ones we see in myeloma of neuropathy and low blood counts and fatigue and clotting don't seem to be an issue. Three, we're starting to see them used in combination. You know, that combination that has been validated, if you will, in lymphoma, where because the drug works by a different mechanism, it's not overlapping the mechanism of the imid or of the proteasome inhibitor, it makes sense to combine them together to have more effective tumor destruction. So obviously time will tell. They're not ready for the clinic yet. They're in clinical trial. But, you know, I can say, Neil, as is clearly public information, that these drugs are being tested in clinical trials in frontline therapy and relapse therapy in very heavily pretreated patients and in all settings, very encouraging results. And we suspect that this will be a big part of what we do in the future. The other new part of the future I was curious about, you were talking before about how the proteasome inhibitors right now have to be administered parenterally, either sub-Q with bortezomib or IV with carfilzomib. What about oral proteasome inhibitors that might be easier to take in the long run? Absolutely. I mean, we've seen an improvement within the classes. So the monoclonal antibodies is a whole different class, and there are maybe another seven or eight classes of drugs that are being looked at. But even within the classes that have proven themselves so effective, like proteasome inhibitors, I do think that we're going to benefit from being able to take drugs more conveniently for patients. So there's an oral version, if you will, of bortezomib called ixazomib, which has just recently been reported in the literature. It, much like bortezomib, is very effective in patients, can be used either on its own or in combination, and is a pill. It comes with some potential stomach upset and nausea, but Again, most patients, I think, if given the choice, would rather take a pill than a subcutaneous or IV injection. And secondly, carfilzomib also has an oral equivalent or partner called oprozomib. It's hard to keep all these names straight, you know. But the oprozomib also is still a little bit earlier in development, but I've had the chance to work with it extensively in clinical trial. And again, a very effective drug, a little bit tough on the GI system, but looks like we're getting better at managing that with newer formulations of it. And I suspect that these will be yet another way to deliver proteasome inhibition in a more convenient manner for our patients. So the last thing I want to ask you about is, I guess, the most recently approved drug in myeloma, panabinostat. What is it and how is it going to be used? Panabinostat is one of the drugs from a class of drugs that are often called the HDAC inhibitors or histone deacetylase inhibitors. They're an interesting class of drugs because they're ones that we can sometimes use now in lymphoid malignancies like lymphoma that seem to have a lot of activity. And interestingly, in the early studies with this drug, it didn't really have a lot of what we call single-agent activity in myeloma, meaning when we used it alone in myeloma, there really wasn't an effect. I had the privilege of leading one of those trials where we combined it for myeloma and lymphoma patients, and the lymphoma patients seemed to have a response, but the myeloma patients didn't. That being said, it's really a new approach for us in myeloma to see that even if a drug doesn't work on its own, you know, it didn't get its own invitation to the party, if it comes with someone else, it can be effective. And so the trial that led to its approval was a trial of using bortezomib plus panabinostat versus just the bortezomib on its own, both of them with some dexamethasone, and showed that the panabinostat plus bortezomib arm had a better effect than those who had just bortezomib, roughly about a four-month improvement in their progression-free survival. Now, that number is modified a little bit because there were some changes in the trial and so on, but to keep it simple, it had a benefit of about four more months of remission before progression than those who had just bortezomib. 
And so it raised the question to our minds, wow, here's a drug that on its own didn't do a lot, but when partnered with bortezomib was better than just bortezomib alone. Can you talk a little bit about exactly how the drug works and what the thinking is about why somehow there's synergy with a proteasome inhibitor such as bortezomib? That's a great question. And you know, we love to talk about mechanisms in myeloma, and a lot of times there's a lot of hand-waving. We don't know exactly what's going on. But there was some good studies in the lab and in mice beforehand to encourage this notion that the two drugs could be synergistic or boost each other. And a lot of it has to do with the immune system, in particular the bone marrow microenvironment, where we know that proteasome inhibitors like bortezomib work in a certain way, and they upregulate certain pathways and downregulate other pathways. And these histone deacetylase inhibitors, the HDAC inhibitors like panabinostat, can definitely enhance that activity. Interestingly, there was an earlier form of another drug like panabinostat that verinostat that, again, looked really promising in the lab, but then when we did it in patients, it didn't make much of an effect. And so these HDAC inhibitors are going through kind of an evolution. In fact, there's even now more advanced HDAC inhibitors that may also be of benefit. But it's working in that immune environment that has really given these drugs an opportunity to flourish. And it's new for us in myeloma to appreciate that because we're so used to thinking a drug's got to work on its own. But now with this rationale of being able to affect the tumor microenvironment and influence the way tumors proliferate by inhibiting them with these sort of two-punch combo, I mean, you know, one punch wasn't enough, but two together can be effective, is why there was rationale to go ahead and do this kind of study, even though on its own it didn't work. What are some of the side effects that have been observed? So probably the most concerning side effect, apart from the ones that we might expect from bortezomib, you know, some of the the potential for neuropathy or the potential for counts dropping, with the addition of panabinostat, the issue there was diarrhea. And in fact, somewhere around one in five patients had to come off the study because of that. Now, I think it wasn't fully appreciated early on that that was going to be as great a side effect. And towards the end of the trial, when more proactive things were done to recognize that it was coming to intervene quickly with anti-diarrheals like Imodium definitely helped. I think the other feature to that, that with time, or at least now in clinical practice, we're seeing a little less diarrhea than was seen in the trial, is also because, as you may know, bortezomib itself can be associated with some diarrhea. And if we're giving it on a weekly basis or subcutaneously or, again, just anticipating coming, there seems to be a little bit less because I think the two of them were sort of potentiating that effect together. Because that was probably the greatest concern, that if you've got a dropout rate of you know, 20 to 25%, then that's obviously worrisome. But I think we're probably going to be seeing numbers in the practice that we're seeing now. It's hard to give you an exact number, but we're seeing a bit less than that. I think it's probably more like 10 to 15% of people who have significant diarrhea that we have to really carefully manage. But really outside of that, of course, there was some nausea associated with it, some blood counts that were dropping, which is expected with this combination, but most of them quite manageable. And in terms of the diarrhea, usually you keep the treatment going or you have to hold it? So again, we sort of assess that based on the severity of it. More often than not, we want to try and continue the treatment. Sometimes we might interrupt it or hold it for a week or so until a patient can. We just obviously talk to the patient, make sure that there's no other obvious cause of diarrhea because, you know, myeloma patients can also get food poisoning and infections. We don't want to be masking those. But if there's really no evidence of those and it really seems to be occurring from the drug, often we'll hold it for a week, let 
let things settle, maybe give some antidiarrheals, and then reintroduce the treatment. And often patients can get reintroduced to it. You know, what about fatigue? I've heard that discussed in a number of HDAC inhibitors. Of course, it's always hard to separate out what the disease or another drug might be causing. But do you think that fatigue is seen with panobinostat? You know, fatigue, unfortunately, is something we see with just about every agent we use. And like you said, sometimes it's hard to discriminate it from the disease itself because these patients, unfortunately, have relapsed myeloma. And so that in itself is present. So I do think it is an issue, and we have seen it in some patients. Although, you know, I wouldn't say it's dramatically more than we've seen with, you know, immune modulatory drugs or with other approaches. So I would approach it, you know, from a patient care nursing perspective in a similar way, assess the severity of it, see how much it's impacting the patient's quality of life, ensure there aren't other issues that can cloud it, such as, you know, their hemoglobin level, other features in their life, their sleep hygiene, et cetera. But I don't think it's been a deal breaker in the overwhelming majority of patients. You talked about the synergy that somehow occurs between this agent as well as the proteasome inhibitor, bortezomib. What about other proteasome inhibitors? Of course, carfilzomib was one that's very important, but also their oral proteasome inhibitors that are coming out. They're not approved yet. Exazomib, which is a lot like bortezomib, and aprozomib, a lot like carfilzomib. You would think if you could do that, you'd have an all-oral regimen. What about those kinds of strategies? Absolutely. And those are the strategies exactly that are being pursued now. Now that this drug has sort of proven itself with bortezomib, in fact, even right now, there are ongoing trials with carfilzomib. There's one with exazomib. I haven't seen that one has commenced yet with oprozomib, but I know that that's in the plans for the exact reasons that you've stated. One, that we think the synergy should work. Yes, You know, carfilzomib and oprozomib are a different form of proteasome inhibitor, but the scientific synergy that we expect to happen should happen with those. And obviously, from a convenience standpoint, that would be great. The only slight caution has been both exazomib and oprozomib, although under much better control now with the newer formulation of oprozomib, they are also two drugs associated with some GI upset and diarrhea. So we just want to make sure that's approached carefully because we don't want to exacerbate that symptom. But who wouldn't rather take a pill than have either a sub-Q or an intravenous infusion? So this drug has been approved in the relapse refractory setting. And in oncology, often we see that drugs that are approved in a late-line disease then get tested earlier on. What about that strategy with that combining it, for example, with some of the induction regimens? And that's absolutely also being looked at. I mean, that's always been the strategy in myeloma, like you said, with just about any malignancy. You know, I think there's always... A little bit of hesitation when a drug hasn't had just sort of prolific single agent activity. There's only so many drugs that you can put together in the frontline setting, and that's your your opportunity to have a really good hit against the disease. But I don't want to undersell it. I mean, I do think that it's always worth exploring these, and I'm aware of at least two different trials that are in development that would include panabinostat much earlier on the disease course, if not right at frontline therapy. So maybe you can present your 70-year-old lady who received this agent. A fascinating woman, really loves art, both drawing it herself, but also appreciating it. So she always comes in the clinic with these great photos of the art that she's been involved with. And so she was diagnosed, I want to say a little over four years ago, Neil, and she was treated with a Cybor-D regimen up front, so cyclophosphamide, bortezomib, and dex, and had a very good response to that and had an autologous stem cell transplant. At that time, we weren't as prolifically using maintenance therapy, so she didn't receive 
receive any maintenance therapy. And unfortunately, her disease came back a little bit over a year. I want to say it was about a year and a half after her initial transplant. And so she went on to a lenalidomide and dexamethasone combination and had some challenges with that. She responded, but the fatigue from the lenalidomide was quite prolific in her. And that doesn't always happen. I usually tell my patients one in five or so are going to have real struggles with fatigue. And so she came off the lenalidomide. And when we talked about what next therapies to go to, we had the option of going to carfilzomib. And so she was given a carfilzomib-cyclophosphamide combination and did really well with that for over a year. But then her disease started to come back. And at that point, we actually initiated a pomalidomide. But unfortunately, she seemed to have this issue with imids. So her pomalidomide therapy helped, but she again had quite a bit of fatigue with it, and her blood counts were dropping. So, so just like with the lenalidomide. Yeah, it was quite similar. As you know, pomalidomide is pretty close to that. So we sat and talked about different options, and there were some other issues that certain clinical trials weren't as attractive to her. So looking back, we saw someone who really had had a good response to bortezomib. So it was still, if you will, bortezomib-sensitive, and we wanted to add something to it. She'd already had cyclophosphamide a couple of times, both with the bortezomib and with the carfilzomib. So when I think of panabinostat as a booster agent, we were going to plan to put her back on a bortezomib-containing regimen, and we said, well, let's see how we do with adding panabinostat. And that was really just several weeks ago now. It's a little bit early to determine how she's responding to the combination, but at least the first cycle went well. She didn't have diarrhea. We've been giving the bortezomib weekly and subcutaneously, and she's been taking her pano, and time will tell how she's responding. But after a first month, there was a little bit of a drop in her disease, not enough to really quantify a major response or anything yet, but she's tolerating it well. What kinds of things did you discuss with her as you began this regimen of bortezomib and panobinostat? What were the things that you told her to call you about, for example? So as with, you know, every patient, we obviously have a really good, we've got a great system where I sit and talk to them, of course, about the regimen. And then one of our nurse coordinators comes in and has a similar conversation. She'd been really quite familiar with bortezomib from before, but we reiterated some of the key things to remember around bortezomib, particularly if she had developed anything that would speak of an infection, if she developed any numbness or tingling in her hands or her feet. And then, of course, if she developed any GI upset or diarrhea, Similarly, we added on to that with the panabinostat that if she started having diarrhea, we wanted to know about it. We didn't want her to wait until, and I think we learned this from the trial, is that sometimes people sort of wait until their diarrhea was really bad before they called in, and sometimes the horse is out of the barn by then. And so we would want her to, within 24 hours of experiencing that, be in touch with us. Obviously, the first month of any new regimen, we're a little bit more cautious. So we did check her blood work with bortezomib-based regimens. I usually check blood work just once a month. But if I'm reinitiating it in someone with relapse, and you remember she'd had low blood counts on the pomalidomide previously, we opted to check it every other week. And so that gave us a chance to sort of check in on her more formally at the two-week mark. And thankfully, she'd been doing well.